Oh, cheers. How's that? Is that okay? Good, good. We should try again. <clears throat> We're going to look at Psalm 42. Uh, most, and the title is Hope in God, which, yes, has magically appeared. Uh, most commentators think that this psalm was written by David. It doesn't specifically say so, but we should be guided by the experts. Uh, and it opens with these words. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. That should be the heart cry of every Christian. We should all constantly be thirsting, desiring God. Somebody once said that God, being God, is to be worshipped for who he is. And this thirsting after him uh, is the ultimate expression of our worship. He must always be our chief desire in life. Psalm 73 says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. So, application right at the start. Do you have a heart hunger for God? Do you thirst after God? Do you want God? See, if I said you want the blessings that come from knowing God, of course we'd all say, oh, yes, yes. You want a happy life? Oh, yes, yes. You want to go to heaven when you die? Oh, yes, yes, yes. But do you want God for himself? See, um, most of us know or have known a young couple madly in love with each other. Now, they may go out, they may do certain things, walk by the river, go for a meal, do all manner of things. But their joy is actually being with each other. And that's how it should be with me and God and with you and God. Now, notice three important things uh, in these opening lines. See, the psalmist speaks, as we've just looked at, desire, panting, thirsting. It means, of course, longing, yearning, hungering. And it speaks of a deep desire. This is not just a passing attraction to something. This is, this is a deep desire. And then he says, his soul thirsts for God. This, again, it's not surface, it's not superficial. You know, you can hear a testimony of somebody who's had an experience with God, and you go, oh, yeah, that would be, you know, they've experienced the peace of God or the joy of the Lord. And you think, oh, yeah, that, that, I'd like that. And then you go away and forget all about it. This is from his soul. One hymn writer wrote, Revive thy work, O Lord, create soul thirst for thee, and hungering for the bread of life, oh, may our spirits be. And the third thing I want you to notice there is talking about God. And that is, of course, the God of the Bible. Now, before you draw me aside and say, well, it is a Christian church, we do tend to talk about the God of the Bible. I've known of some Christians, and they will say, for instance, I can't believe that a loving God would allow people to go to a, a lost eternity. Well, Jesus spoke about heaven, but he also spoke about hell. And he also made it clear that we are all heading for one or other. I've heard some Christians say they can't believe that 
uh, a loving God would, would choose some people to be born again. It's referred to usually as, as predestination or election. And they say, no, I, I can't believe God does that. Well, predestination is all through the Bible. It's from cover to cover. And then there are some who have uh, an austere, severe view of God that he's, in effect, he's a tyrant. And they neglect his compassion, his love and concern. All these can be said by people who would claim to be Christian. Now, if I have a view of God which is other than he has revealed himself, then I actually have an idol. I have a God of my own creation. So it's important when we read the word of God, um, sometimes you read things and it kind of stops you and it tracks you and you think, is that really true? Is that the God I worship? Well, whatever it says in there, that is the God that we're talking about. Now, as we read through the rest of this Psalm 42, we see, obviously, a man who is in trouble. He's got some issues he's trying to sort out, and he's calling on God, and God seems a million miles away, and nothing seems to be happening. Our old pastor used to say that faith and doubt cannot coexist. So if you're trusting God, you're... If you're trusting, you're not doubting. Or if you're doubting, you're not trusting. Um, as much as I respected the man, I think he was wrong. I think very often faith and fear or faith and doubt, very often they go together. And I think you see that in this uh, Psalm 42. I mean, didn't somebody say to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. There's a man struggling, he wants to believe, and yet there's doubts. So I think very often they go together. And in this psalm, we see three things. These are the three headings. Number one, his present hopelessness, his past happiness, and his future hopefulness. So, his present hopelessness. He says, my tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? He says, as with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. And then he finishes with, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? See, turmoil, cast down, tears, waves going over. It's, he sums it up and he says, well, he just feels that God has forgotten him. And God has passed him by. And that's not the only time that David felt for sake. If it was David, then we assume it was. Psalm 143. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. Psalm 63. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. And remember, water is not a luxury, is it? It's our very life. See, there's some people who have the idea that if we're Christian, we belong to the Lord, right? Then we shouldn't have trials and tribulations and difficulty. We should always be on top of things. Well, one man said, I always have a mountaintop experience. He said, sometimes I'm on top of the mountain, and sometimes the mountain is on top of me. Well, 
That's how it is as a Christian. It's not plain sailing. And uh, many others throughout the ages have known what this man is going through and possibly what maybe some people listening now are going through. Um, read Job, oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his seat. Behold, I go forwards, he's not there. I go backwards, I do not perceive him. On the left hand, I do not behold him. He turns to the right hand, I do not see him. And then as you read the lives of men and women of God uh, throughout the long history of the Christian church, um, you see that many experience that same feeling of having been left by God, of being abandoned. I heard one person say, you feel as if you have fallen off God's radar. That's an apt way of putting it, I think. The old Puritans, they used to talk about desertions, those times when God seems, well, to have deserted you. So we see then the psalmist is experiencing a sense of hopelessness. And then we see his past happiness. Verse 4, these things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. He remembers how it used to be, going, to the th going with the throng to the house of God to praise God. They'd be shouting and singing, and it says he would be leading them. And you see this a lot. You read through the Old Testament, where in the, um, the times when God moved amongst them, how they worshipped. They sang, they danced, they rejoiced, they strummed instruments, they banged drums, they clashed cymbals. Can imagine it was quite noisy, I would have thought. I know some people don't like it when cymbals and things are too loud, but uh, go there. There was laughter, there was joy. Very, very noisy. But that's how it used to be. Now he, I don't know, it's just somehow gone. And uh, he feels God is not there anymore. He doesn't feel like doing that. <clears throat> One Sunday, a young man got up and he said to his mum, do you know, mum, I don't think I'll bother today. She said, what do you mean you won't bother? He said, I don't think I'll go to church today. She said, well, you've got to go to church. It's Sunday today. You've got to go to church. He said, no. He said, I don't feel like it. She said, son, you've got to go. He said, look, mother, I don't feel like going. I don't want to go. I'm not going. She said, son, you must go to church. He said, well, give me one good reason why. She said, because you are the pastor. You can think that people who appear here regularly, people who preach from this word, pastors, missionaries, whoever, you can think that they're always on top. Very often, leaders feel discouraged and disheartened. There's a book written by um, Charles Spurgeon. He wrote it for his students, lectures to my students, it's called. One of the chapters is entitled, The Minister's Fainting Fits. So even pastors, even leaders, sometimes do feel discouraged. And uh, in his case, he's saying about the remembrance, he's remembering how it was. And it, I think sometimes when you're going through a bad time, remembering the good times is kind of, 
extra difficult, isn't it? You think, oh, why I can't, be, can't I be back there? So then we see number three, his future hopefulness. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night, his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Think of those words for a minute, hope in God. That can sound very empty, can't it? It can sound very, I don't know, like it doesn't, unmeaningful or, um, I suppose, trite, is that the word? And, and, you know, you're in a difficult situation. Somebody comes along, oh, hope in God, you know. Well, I mean, I've heard of people um, with terminal illnesses and people who've gone from their church, not this one, another one. Uh, and they say, well, the trouble with you, of course, you haven't got enough faith, that kind of thing. Well, to talk to people in, in difficult circumstances in that way is actually cruel, it is heartless, uh, it is wrong. Now, hoping God might be the right thing to say, but there is a right and a wrong way uh, to say it. By all means, encourage people to hope in God, but do it with compassion and with some understanding of their circumstances. I'm going to read you um, <clears throat> a few words from 1 Samuel 30. No need to turn to it now, but you might want to read it later. And it's about another man, who, or, or rather the same, but David, uh, another situation uh, where he had to hope in God. This is, listen to these words. When David and his men came to Ziklag, the place where they were staying, the Amalekites had made a raid against Ziklag. They had overcome it and burned it with fire, taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but they carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire, and their wives, sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's wives also had been taken. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, as if he hadn't got enough problems already, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. There's a man in a crisis. He's already exhausted from what he's been doing before, and now he comes back, everything's been taken, families, wives, children, property, and then he's probably thinking, well, at least I've got these guys, and then they turn on him. And then what does it say? David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Now, as you read on in this psalm, he says, I shall again praise him. In his inner heart, he knew eventually it would come right. He knew everything would one day be right. He talks about my salvation and my God. So God, he knew God would not actually totally abandon him. And he knew he would come through it. And the same with any one of us going through difficult, difficult trials. Listen to these words. 
All the way my Savior leads me, cheers each winding path I tread, gives me grace for every trial, feeds me with the living bread. Though my weary steps may falter and my soul athirst may be, gushing from the rock before me, lo, a spring of joy I see. Very easy to listen to those words and say, well, it's all right for these hymn writers, you know, they can write their nice little verses and they want to come and join me in the real world, see what I have to face, see the problems I have to cope with, see what hits me day after day after day and then come and write this stuff. Well, those words were actually written by an American lady, Fanny J. Crosby, as a baby, she had an eye infection and the family tried to get hold of their doctor, couldn't get hold of it. So nothing's changed there in 200 years. <laughs> so somebody else came along and they found out afterwards he wasn't even a qualified uh, doctor. And because of how he handled it, he, he actually ended up blind in the Borgar. And she lived into her 90s and um, she never regained her sight. So you see, when she talks about uh, every trial and um, winding paths, she talks about weary steps. She knew a little bit about what she was talking about. And that's often the case. Some of the hymns we sing that are most inspiring and most encouraging have come out of these depths, out of these experiences. Uh, oh, several spring to mind, and they, people went through very difficult times, and so the hymns they wrote came out of that experience, where they experienced the grace of God. Because in God, there is always hope. He says, by day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. So even in his darkest times, he's convinced that God hasn't abandoned him, and he won't abandon you either, nor me. See, in Hebrews, if God had said, I will never leave you, nor forsake you, if he had said that, that would have been an amazing promise. Imagine if he said to me right now, I will never leave you, nor forsake you. Trouble with that translation, it doesn't really bring out the full force of the words. In the original text, there are five negatives. In other words, probably better to translate it something like this. I will never, never leave you. I will never, never, never forsake you. If you look at the Amplified Bible, which is not an easy Bible to read. Um, it's good for reference, because you can look up odd sections, but uh, it's called Amplified, because as it goes through, it amplifies the meanings of the words. Hebrews 13.5 in the Amplified says this, For God himself has said, I will not in any way fail you, nor give you up, nor leave you without support. I will not... I will not, I will not in any degree leave you helpless, nor forsake you, nor let you down, 
or relax my hold on you? Assuredly not. That's more like what it actually says, okay? There is a hymn written by John Rippon that we sing from time to time. Again, I think it might magically appear. Yeah, there we are. The soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to its foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavour to shake, I'll never, no never, no never forsake. Now, why does he keep repeating the words? Well, he's got a line of music and he's got these words. He's got to, you know, if he, if he says, I will not desert to his face, that's not going to fill the line. I have to repeat it. You know, I will not, I will not. And then the next one, oh, I'll never, no, I'll have to repeat, never. Oh, I've put three never. The reason he wrote it like that is because that's what the Bible actually says. All these nevers and I will nots, that's actually what, what the text says. And sometimes, when we're in trouble, see, God has two ways of dealing with our problems. One is he changes the situation. The other is he doesn't change the situation, he changes us in the situation. Now, I know somebody uh, was in a job, they'd kind of come to the end of, if you know what I mean, they said, oh, I can't do this anymore. And they prayed. And they were led into a totally different job. Now they're quite happy what they're doing. If you look at um, 2 Corinthians 12, uh, Paul had a problem that he took to the Lord and he asked that the Lord would take it away. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Sometimes he will change the situation. Sometimes he would change us so that we can cope with the situation. So what do I do in the meantime? I'm experiencing this desertion, as the Puritans would put it. I feel like God's a million miles away. What do I do? Well, number one, don't stop. Don't give up calling on God. Yeah, but I pray and nothing happens. That's a lie from Satan. If you pray, if it's a, a sincere prayer, something always happens. Even those times you think your prayers are not even reaching the ceiling. If you pray, something happens always. See, J um, Jacob in Genesis, remember when he had the dream of the ladder going up to heaven? What does he say? He wakes up and he said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I didn't know it. And you've got the two disciples after the resurrection of Jesus. They're on the road to a place called Emmaus. Jesus comes and joins them, but their eyes are kind of held from recognizing him. So here's Jesus with them, and they're down in the dump. They said, oh, we thought it was all going to be different. We thought Jesus was going to do this, that, and the other. We thought we had hoped. That's the expression, we had hope. And yet Jesus is right there with them, and they didn't realize. And that's very often what you will experience in life. Something is going wrong, something going wrong on top of that. It, oh, everything's falling. But very often, the Lord is, is right there with you, working things out. It doesn't feel like it, and it doesn't seem like it. <clears throat> Number two, keep reading the Bible and hang on to the promises. 
Uh, we read um, Faith's Checkbook. I know some of you read that all. You know, other daily readings are available. Um, read the promises of God. Number three, let it be a time of heart searching. Have I done something to grieve God? Is he not happy with me for something? So what do I do? I ask him to search my heart and show me, you know, have I done anything? Have I said it? Is there anything about me that you want me to change? And fourthly, of course, ask others to pray for you. These times are not easy, but they can be for our good. I, I used to listen to a preacher. He had at one time been a, a farmer. And I always remember him saying one day, the soil needs the winter as much as it needs the summer. Things happen in the cold when it's frosty. Things happen uh, that don't happen in summer. So the soil needs winter, and, and so do we as Christians. We need the difficult time. We need times when God seems a million miles away. It doesn't kind of add up somehow, does it? But that's how it is. So, and by the way, that will also develop things like faith, humility. You can't be proud and go through that sort of experience. Uh, we have to remember God's preparing us for eternity. He's not just giving us a happy life for a few years. He's actually working on us to um, prepare us for a home in heaven. So, we've looked at a man who felt abandoned, and we've seen that there's always hope. Now, why can I have hope? What reason do I have? What has happened for me to have hope in God? Well, of course, it's because of the one who actually was forsaken, the one who was, who did experience being separated from God, the one who cried from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I'm forgiven because you were forsaken. I'm accepted, you were condemned. I'm alive and well, your spirit is within me because you died and rose again. Amazing love. How can it be that you, my king, should die for me? Amazing love, I know it's true and it's my joy to honour you in all I do. Whatever circumstances you face, whatever situation, whatever difficulty, there is always, always hope in God. See, what is Christianity? Well, set of rules, you mustn't do this and you mustn't do that, and you've got to be miserable on Sunday. <clears throat> That's not Christianity. Christianity is the life of God in the soul of man. It's a supernatural experience. One more hymn to quote. Within the veil, it means in the presence of God. Within the veil, thy spirit deeply anchored. Thou walkest calm above a world of strife. Within the veil, thy soul with him united shall live on earth his resurrection life. You can experience, as many have before you, the grace, the joy, 
and the peace of God which will enable you to live the life he wants you to live and that you want to live.